Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, vetgurus.com. Brendan here with Mark, episode 136, Friday, May the 15th, 2020. And lockdown continues, Mark, although the restrictions are slowly being eased um, here in Australia and I think in a lot of other countries. And um, I never thought I'd, I'd look forward to the to my morning poo run, Mark. <laughs> uh, I don't know about you, and I'm not talking about my own bowel movements. I'm talking about going outside and uh, spending a bit of time in the backyard with the, with the shovel and um, picking up the dog poo um, and popping it in the big pile of, um, well, sort of composted material in the um, back corner of our backyard, Mark, and... Um, I find it quite therapeutic. <laughs> I don't know why, but um, it's crazy times, isn't it? Crazy times. How have you been this week? Well, much the same as you. I think there's an element of um, of uh, um, what it uh, cabin fever, stir craziness. I, I just notice it in my house. I notice it at work. People are just starting to edge towards a little bit of I don't know lunacy. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. It just seems to be um, we're reaching a point of uh, um, difficult to tolerate. Yes, although my wife says that most days uh, when I wake up and she looks over and sees me, <laughs> but that's another story. But, yes, I, I, I know what you mean. And um, although I, I, I think we've been, touch wood, quite lucky with our clients and we have excellent clients mark um as a general rule in that they've been very understanding during this time and i think they just appreciate the fact that we're still open and able to see the animals even though it's a to be frank a bit of a pain isn't it for them to sort of drive up and sit in the car and have the animal taken out and back and plus or minus talking to the nurse and then the vet from afar or we get a few clients, or I do when I'm consulting. In that, I get one in one at a time in the waiting room and talk to them there. Especially, it's been a bit cold lately, so um, standing outside trying to chat to them near the car is a bit tricky. So we invite them in and um, tell them to stay away and um, talk to them from afar. So, yes, um, so I don't know when. My, my question to you, mate, would be when? When do you think? When do you think that things will get towards? normality as far as consultations in the veterinary community well I'm, I'm a little bit unsure brendan but i know that um that uh at the moment we're still we still effectively have a client uh free space in you know the waiting room that the clients have been dropping pets off at the door they're warned about that before they show up and um to be completely honest it, uh, they've been They've been very, very tolerant about that. They've um, they've completely accepted it, and they drop their pet off with a short history. They'll often get a phone call um, completing the history, then a phone call discussing the the um, the, the the plan um, out of the consult, the results of the consult, and the plan out of that, um, and then um, our receptionists wander out. 
um, they have gloves on and they uh, they do um, you know uh, tap, tap mainly almost virtually no cash all tap the card on the the FPOS machine and then wipe it down with uh, sanitizer and um, it's uh, it's been remarkably uh, aseptic. So, um, but I th- expect that to go on for another couple of weeks, Brendan. I think we're in the zone at least up here for another couple of weeks. And I am worried. We've um, in New South Wales here. We've had uh, um, a uh, no. Um, new cases uh, since Saturday night, I think the last new case in New South Wales was. Um, but I know that those uh, diagnosed case numbers are the result of infections that occurred two weeks ago. And so yes. um, what's happened, oh my goodness, on the weekend, the restrictions being just lifted and eased a little bit. And I know your state of Victoria's come under some fire, your, your Premier's come under some fire for his... A fairly firm stance on this, um, but um, yeah, um, I, I, I admire the fact that he's doing it, Brendan, because I am worried that we're going to be two weeks down the track and have that famous second wave happening across New South Wales and possibly all of Australia. Yes, time will tell. Um, I think restrictions or the way veterinary practices are practising with the with the social distancing, et cetera, will continue probably much longer than two weeks, Mark. I expect it might be a month or two, but we will see. We will see. Um, so that's my news. Yeah, going stir-crazy here as well and um, doing the poo run, Mark. Um, that's been all I've been doing. And um, and because the weather hasn't been good, I haven't been able to get out and um, – knock some pieces of wood together. Um, and I'm not talking about my two girls' heads. Um, I'm talking about making something. Um, so no, that's a very poor joke there, wasn't it? Um, I'd never, I'd never land on my girls, as you know. <laughs> I have to backtrack very quickly with that one. Um, yes, so um, no, I haven't been doing much. And by the look of it, you sent me an amazing photograph for our main topic today which we'll get stuck into shortly after a couple of quick news stories and uh, I have been doing stuff all photography Mark so that's another thing I've been missing so I I need to get off my backside and do a bit more of that as well. Um, Well it's a bit hard though Brendan um, because um, with the restrictions on movement and and you have nailed, nailed it in that my the photograph I sent you was a macro shot taken in the yard, and and that's how stir crazy I've been. I've been wandering around with the um, the macro lens and a couple of extension tubes and a, a few uh, flashes and diffusers, trying to get um, um, shots and get a bit more practice at um, at macro work. But um, but I, I did sneak out on the under the pretext of um, of uh, of some exercise and wandered up into the bush and found some glossy black cockatoos last week, and um, that's a little bit of a highlight for me. Those guys are pretty special. Yes, yes, and I I'd, um, I always see – I must be get links with all your posts, and I'm very jealous, Mark, with the, with the quality of your photographs these days. Um, you've far surpassed me with your skills there, Mark. So, yes. So um, I don't think we have a review this week, uh, although I must say, Mark, um, we had a lot of, a lot of, let me say, interest with our review and comments about 
Tiger King and, um, yeah, very controversial, as we, we sort of mentioned, and um, it's really um, polarised people, hasn't it? And it continues to do so, and it certainly did so with our listeners as well. So um, the good news is I think it increased our listenership um, quite <laughs> quite dramatically for that week, Mark, and I don't know how that worked. Maybe we had a – I can't remember whether I had a particular link there with um, on the website um, and we got a bit of clickbait there or something, but um, we had several hundred more listeners for that particular episode compared with our average. So, yeah, there we go. So um, perhaps we'll review something next week or so and just reminding our listeners, don't don't be shy. Send us an email to vetgurus at gmail.com and um, perhaps you could send us a review of something that you've been using in your clinic or something of interest or relevance or, or just say hi to us because we like to we like to talk or email or chat um, to our listeners and contact our listeners because, yeah, it helps us stop going stir-crazy. So what's your first news story, Mark? Well, it's um, one that's particularly pertinent to our, um, our, our current circumstance with the uh, the coronavirus. Um, it's an article from the Mother Nature Network, one of our famous, one of our favourite sources. Um, uh, and the article's headed "Don't Blame Bats for Their Zoonotic Viruses." And so it's an article that runs through, um, you know, the the fact that um, it's quite well. I think it's fairly accepted now that um, uh, that um, the uh, SARS-CoV two, the virus that's responsible for the current pandemic um, almost certainly originated in um, the bat population um, and maybe uh, passaged much like Hendra virus um, through another species. Pangolins have been um, the one that's been promoted at the moment um, uh, before making that uh, very, very uh, important leap into species leap into humans um, and then um, spread around the world. Um, and it's interesting to contemplate that um, uh, that um, a significant number of the the uh, the particularly the the viruses and diseases that are, are responsible for significant outbreaks, epidemics, and then pandemics are um, are zoonotic diseases. And it all harkens back to our one health attitude that um, uh, that understanding these diseases in animals uh, and helping to manage them probably plays a big role in how likely they are to leap into humans because um, they definitely, um, you know, the, a large percentage. I think uh, this article quotes um, something like six, more than sixty of the uh, fourteen hundred viruses and other pathogens known to infect humans. Um, more than 60% are zoonotic, meaning that they've jumped uh, to our species from no, uh, some non-human animal. Um, and bats do seem to be uh, one of the common sources, uh, and it's not entirely clear um, uh, why that's the case. So um, the SARS-like coronavirus, um, Ebola, um, uh, you know, in Australia, Hendra, the Lysaviruses. There's a a, um, a litany of diseases that our um, our leathery winged friends uh, carry that um, that do seem to be particularly dangerous for us. Um, but I think that one of the key thing for me out of this article, Brendan, um, is that um, 
and I was really pleased to see this in this article, um, is that um, environmental effects on the bats, like I know in much of Australia we talk about, um, there are people who talk about um, moving the bats on the fruit bats that might be in their local area, um, but this article quite rightly points out that those pressures on the environment um, that um, maybe um, deforestation, um, the things that uh, alter the bat's immunity and the bat's behaviour and brings them into more close contact with people are much more likely to uh, turn that uh, viral reservoir um, that's asymptomatic in the bats and make it dangerous for humans. What did you think about the article? <laughs> yes, it's quite it's it's a very comprehensive article, isn't it? It's quite a long article. It's more than three paragraphs, so I'd struggled to maintain um, focus with it there, Mark. Um, but well, very, a, very good. It's, um, one of the things that one of the reasons <laughs> that we love the Mother Nature Network is that um, they it often distills these um, these topics to a you know a, a bite sized chunk that we can. Um, masticate in front of everyone on on our podcast, but this one is an extensive article that um, that does go through um, a lot of those features: the zoonotic potential, the other diseases, um, deforestation. It covers a lot of things, doesn't it? Yes, um, it's an excellent article, and I think all our listeners should go over to vetgurus.com and click on the link mark and read it for themselves is what they need to do because, yeah, so I thought it was a very good article and um, summarised summarised it very good. And, um, yeah, the bat's immune system is quite fascinating, isn't it, the way um, it can cope with some of these viruses that um, may knock around other species and I think that's part of the concern that why they – why they um why they may be carrying some of these things eventually jump over to humans but I like the summary that that last paragraph there mark um, is great um, bats don't want to hurt us and they tend to help us when we leave them alone we still don't know for sure whether the new coronavirus came from bats but even if it did that has far more to do with us than it does with them um, so I think that's a, that's my summary of it mark um, from their summary um, yes very good article well my ones well it is slightly related is or it is more than slightly related it's about llamas mark um, and I think you've already had a little squiz at this article there and the title of this one it's from the New York Times hoping llamas will become coronavirus heroes and it's about getting blood from llamas for antibody research. Um, and why? Well, because llamas, did you know this, Mark? Did you know the fact llamas produce two types of antibodies? I certainly didn't before I read this article. And one of the antibodies is similar in size and constitution to the human antibodies, but the other one is much smaller. And that's the one that um, is of interest because it can access tinier pockets and crevices on spike proteins and they can also manipulate llama antibodies very very easily well not very easily but they can certainly um manipulate it so they inject injected they mainly talk about one particular what's the name of it mark it was winter a four-year-old llama with great eyelashes um and they have been using llamas to help um, um 
study and look at antibodies in relation to MERS and SARS um, viruses previously. Um, and in 2016, they did exactly that. And they found that those smaller LAMA antibodies could broadly neutralize many different types of coronavirus viruses. And fast forward to recently, um, they were writing up their findings when the new coronavirus be- began to make headlines in January. And they're hopeful the antibody can eventually be used as a prophylactic treatment by injecting someone who is not yet infected to protect them from the virus, such as healthcare workers. Um, it's a long way off, um, but it's a proactive approach that they're hoping that will move eventually to cr- clinical trials. So I found this um, fascinating, the mark, um, and... Um, you know, I always think, you know, why did they think of then taking that leap? It's a, that 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 leap of thinking, gee, um, llamas have got a couple of different types of antibodies. Let's let's um, start experimenting and and look at some of these viruses that are nasty for humans, or generally coronaviruses, etc., and decide to study them. Um, I just find it fascinating. Those the. <sighs> The geniuses who, who, who decide, I'd never be able to take that leap, Mark. I'd just be looking at those gorgeous eyelashes um, of, um, winter. of winter and I wouldn't go any further. Well, it's interesting, Brendan. The other species that um, that has these uh, more um, smaller antibodies are sharks. Sharks are famous for having these yes. antibodies. But, of course, they don't present as... Um, easy to manage experimental animals um, and certainly they don't have the same eyelashes so um, I can see why the researchers once they realized uh, the species involved they chose the the llama as their experimental animal yes yes well I think we should jump into our main I haven't got a segue to this one mark but this you suggested this one because i think you've been dealing with a few cases and we certainly do not not recently and that is fly strike in the rabbits and we'll stick to rabbits and um yeah we see several if not more than several um during um, a year mark probably several dozen i'd I'd say um of rabbits that have fly strike and um, can be quite devastating for the patients and um, we certainly find rabbits that have been fly struck that um, we cannot save mark so do you want to kick it off and talk about um any cases you've seen recently the frustrations you find with this particular condition for sure and i want to start with the main the first frustration i have several and you can sense by my tone of voice that i've got a couple um the first one is the um the management of expectation because very often these cases uh come to us and Maybe the owners don't even realise initially that they have a case of fly strike or myasis. Um, uh, but even when we appraise them of the diagnosis, um, it's often just viewed more as a you know bad but um, cosmetic problem. You know, uh, um, whatever's happened has allowed the flies to. Um, infest that subcutaneous area and the vets will just clean it up and everything will be good. Um, but um, And so managing that client expectation and steering it away from, um, you know, uh, a cutaneous cosmetic 
um, uh, problem to the truly life-threatening problem that it is. And I think that's the take-home message for my clients that I've got to get in their head that um, that this process uh, is quite uh, likely to, to um, be life-threatening. Um, that's probably the key thing. Um, I do find- and, I th- and I think... Sorry, Mark, and I think because we're dealing with not only a prey species, but they're sneaky little buggers, aren't they? And that's where it can be very difficult for those clients to detect the fact that they um, have a rabbit with with the maggots or the fly um, problem on their particular individual, their, their pet at home. And you, you hit the nail on the head as usual, Brendan, the cryptic nature of their behaviour and the fact that they do that whole preservation reflex uh, conceal the clinical signs and very often it's associated with um you know an aged animal that might not be able to groom properly um and uh, might not be able to maneuver to the correct position to consume the uh the cicatrophs and so they end up with a um, a felted matted bit of hair that gets soiled by the the inappropriately placed cicatrophs and um and all that can happen you know on the the, uh, any of the decently length coated rabbits, um, that stuff can all happen and still the surface of the rabbit's coat can look not too bad. Um, and then you add a few flags to that mix and all of a sudden you've got something that's devastating. Yeah, spot on there, Mark. I mean, the clinical signs there are, are typical of thinking about, you know, what is a fly going to like it wants something nice and moist and warm and so we're looking for for rabbits that are not quite right in the back end aren't we (laughs) that's the way i put it so we're looking from everything from the ones with um, osteoarthritis to the chronic yeah um, you mentioned the long-haired rabbits that can't groom themselves because they might be a bit stiff or sore or they have matted fur Um, those older rabbits that have the chronic renal disease is another classic one Um, the sludgy urine cases um, those intermittent soft stool um, cases so the gastrointestinal problems where we have those those mucusy feces or first pass feces clumped around the backside so um, all of any of those sorts of conditions that can result in those signs um, or underlying conditions are the ones that we're we're looking for so it's a it's a huge range isn't it it's a huge range of underlying problems and I think that's one of the key things I always think about and I stress with with a case of fly strike in a um, in a rabbit is you know what else is wrong with the rabbit why did this rabbit become prone to being fly struck and it is a two-pronged approach you definitely have to primarily deal with the uh, immediate problem the presence of the the uh, fly larvae in in under around the skin some there definitely are cases where we see them just in the soiled coat but most of the cases they've gotten uh, uh, through some ulcerated area and they're in the subcutaneous space but it's critical that uh, you follow up by identifying those predisposing causes, whether it be urinary, whether it be um, uh, spinal arthritis, whatever it is, and change that as well. Otherwise, you'll be in the same position in just a very short period of time. Yep. So we've sort of covered the signs, haven't we? What sort of things we see there? And and these rabbits can hide those 
that fly strike or the myosis for for a fair period of time. So it may have been sitting there that condition for several several days, if not longer. So, um, but having said that, Mark, how do we treat them? Do you treat them as an outpatient? Are they? Do you worry about these, or do you um, get aggressive with things and uh, get stuck into? This is one that I am very aggressive with, Brendan, and I am very aggressive because. Um, uh, my experience has been... You are very aggressive tonight, aren't you? <laughs> routinely, I am. Um, I am very aggressive with these cases because uh, they are, they're emergencies in my practice. They, they um, re- relatively often can go to crap. They can go pear-shaped and be awful. And so, um, and I think there's a little bit of a... Um, I, I've, I've done... I've looked through the literature and I cannot identify... A, um, a specific uh, um, evidence-based description of the uh, pathogenesis, but um, I'm, I'm, I'm certain um, there is talk in Cuisenbury's book of um, the possibility of clostridial toxins being involved, but almost always um, once the maggots are disturbed and so the rabbit will have a in our practice will have a short anesthetic will be groomed or uh, dressed in such a way to remove the to clean the fur and remove the damaged fur to debride the um, skin at that location if it's necrotic um, and then have the maggots removed and we've certainly tried things like um uh, ivermectin injections into the rabbit, um, uh, but um, it, the circulation I don't think is very good to those locations, and um, that that, av- that group of um, avermectins sort of does depend on for you know takes some time for it to move up over the rabbit, and so generally speaking, we're pulling um, the the um, maggots out of the wound and flushing them out of the wound. We try and do that as quickly as possible because, um, and and we also, you know, we want a relatively short anaesthetic. We want the rabbit to be supported with fluid therapy and pain relief, um, and um, we want to make sure that um, that uh, the rabbit's thermally supported because that process of flushing can uh, cause problems with maintaining body temperature. But we're aggressive, Brendan, because they get into trouble if you don't. Yes, and we certainly are as well. And it's pretty amazing how how severe the underrunning of the skin, the way those little maggots can can burrow um, deep or, or, or long distances there. You see, you see a little a little opening, a little pocket in there as you clip up the rabbit. And we tend to sort of um, do exactly the same. We sedate or anaesthetise the rabbit and um, bathe and clip that area. And um, once you've started doing that, um, you might think, gee, there's only one little wound here or one small area there. And then um, they get in there, don't they, Mark? And those maggots get in there and they undermine and that you end up with some pretty nasty, nasty lesions there. And we flush and flush and flush. And yeah, not, I agree completely with your comment about the parasiticides there they can be can be well ineffective i suppose it's not the best choice but um of word there but um physically um i want to try and flush and remove as many as i can at the time because that that rabbit's certainly very compromised anyway so i think any any parasiticides or or treatments we go are going to put on there may not be effective and anything that's going to be transported throughout systemically um, with that rabbit may take time because it's well the rabbit's potentially shut down if it's one of the more severe ones there and um, 
I always um, give a very a very cautious prognosis to any of these rabbits that come in, regardless of what they look like when they first come in. Once I think it is fly struck, I'm, I'm giving a pretty serious um, having a bit of a serious chat to the clients there, Mark, that we might have um, um, a very very sick rabbit on our hand. And that that harkens back to my uh, regional comments that um, it is so important to manage those client expectations because um, I, you know, I think while there's a revulsion for um, maggots, I think that um, many people think that oh, they're just insects that have gotten into a wound, and uh, once that's cleaned up, everything will be fine. And and it is, as you say quite rightly, Brendan. Um, it's uh, uh, something that each of us needs to give a very guarded prognosis and uh, communicate very well with the clients about. Yes, so pain relief, um, fluid support, keeping the animal alive, as as always, is certainly the first step um, we're dealing with them. Um, and, yeah, I'd strongly recommend doing what you suggested there, Mark, sedating or anaesthetising and physically cleaning up the affected area and determining how severe the condition is um, with them. So down the track with the mark, with these ones, let's assume that we've you've given it some um, acute care there and it is responding and, and you're reasonably confident that that the animal, the rabbit is going to survive and um, that, that initial period. Um, what's your process from there, Mark, um, with them? Let, let's say it's been in the clinic for a day and... Um, You've managed to get rid of most of those maggots there. The rabbit's stable. It's eating on its own. Um, what's, your, what's your recommendations to the client? What, what are you sending it home with and, and what's your recommendation to try and not only control the ongoing problem with that rabbit and stop it um, collapsing again um, and and prevention? Well, it, it's a two-fold thing from our point of view. The first one is that we want to... Um, we want to identify the underlying cause, and that may be if it's something like spinal arthritis, then we may be keeping um, that rabbit on uh, non-steroidals and uh, um, pentothen products to maintain their flexibility. It may be that we're um, that we have to look at the urinary tract and uh, um, do some work to figure out um, if they're one of those gluggy calcium carbonate um, producing rabbits and um, and uh, how we're going to manage that. So identifying that cause and managing that. And it's sometimes the case, like uh, some of those, some of my most frustrating rabbit cases are the, the ones that slip into um, the sludgy urine um, and they can be very difficult to turn around. And so once again, it's important to manage the client's expectations that you're going to put a lot of effort into solving the fly strike, but then you've got to make sure that you follow that up with uh, the, um, the the predisposing problem. And some of those predisposing problems might be difficult to get under control. Yes, and ongoing. So it's 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 looking for those underlying conditions and trying to help control or, or treat those. But also, as far as general prevention of fly strife, it's it's the obvious ones there, isn't it, Mark? It, it's it's encouraging the client to to being really careful about examining their rabbit several times a day, ideally keeping the backside um, and the back end. Um, clipped uh, perhaps they could purchase a remington um, clipper there mark um, <laughs> for that process there um keeping keeping the rabbits um diet um is is a really 
big one with these because I find with some of these chronic conditions that get in really tough and get in on that real bland, you know, grass and veggies, hay and veggies diet or even just a large percentage of hay um, with these animals and trying to get get very, very minimum production of those um, abnormal cecotrophs happening and that animal will go a long way to help prevent things like the fly strike. What do you what do you say to clients who come up to you and say, look, um, I'm using X product as a preventative um, for fly strike on my rabbit? Um, do you think any of those sorts of products work? And what, what, do you, what do you have clients suggesting that may work in their rabbit as a preventative? Um, I, I, um, the, the sorts of things that we might spray onto, um, you know, a, um, a um, one of some of those permethrin-based uh, compounds that we might spray onto a dog to prevent the the um, uh, fly bite ear injuries, or um, maybe the the sorts of things that we'd spray onto a horse to discourage flies landing on them. Um, that my experience has been that um, that they're a little bit dangerous with rabbits, um, and I don't know how effective they are um, in you know the the circumstances um, that we're describing. And I much prefer um, to have the clients, um, you know, as you said, uh, be fastidious with hygiene. Um, and probably the most one of the most successful things we've found are the use um, of the of traps so um placing six or eight of the commercial little bottle um traps with baits the commercial baits in them um they markedly lower the number of um of flies around a, a, a home um in the the area in the yard around the home and um that does make a bit of a difference but the products that are actually sprayed on to the animals um in the case of rabbits i i think it's a little bit risky yeah i think you have to be careful i do occasionally apply them in very sort of dilute um dilute um sparingly um amounts with them but um yeah i think it's prevention rather than the treatment and, and some of the things that i've even had clients using fly spray um on their rabbits have you ever had that mark i it, it isn't it always amazing how um if i was to take a bottle of pebo a can of pebo and spray it onto a rabbit i'm sure the thing would literally take two or three breaths and then roll over <laughs> and die promptly. And yet clients do this sort of stuff and get away with it for years, write about it on their Facebook page, um, and then I've got to deal with the consequences of it. Um, I, I, I have heard of it. I have seen it happen. Um, I would not be game to try and do it, Brendan. Yes. Ditto here, Mark. Ditto here. Um, well, is there anything else you want to mention about fly striking rabbits mark and um i think most most canny rabbit owners do realize that fly strike is a very serious condition in rabbits and um, i've certainly had rabbits with fly strike presented to me that that don't make it um and i expect i will in the future as well because it's a pretty nasty condition there and yes um your comments at the start about 
um, you know, is there some sort of toxin um, going on there is, is a really good one because, yeah, I've, I have had rabbits that seemingly only have very, very few maggots in there and a fairly small wound and yet um, have have passed away pretty quickly um, after being brought into the clinic there. So I think you're right there and there's, there's something going on there and um, at some stage somebody smarter than me um, will, will perhaps identify what that, that agent is, Mark, that's causing some sort of anaphylactic type response in them. And, and, and I'm confident that it'll be someone smarter than me as well, but I'm certain that there's, uh, because it's all out of all proportion to the size of the wounds, that you can't draw a correlation between the likelihood that these rabbits will survive um, and the size of the wounds. As soon as they yeah. have um, those uh, fly larvae in under the skin, even at what would seem to be a relatively early stage um, and relatively small sort of window, um, it's it's um, it's an emergency as far as I'm concerned. Yep, and that animal is, should be regarded as seriously ill, if not critical, and I think that's an important point for those listeners who don't see rabbits very often. When they see a rabbit with fly strike, get stuck into it quickly and, and give the owner a very... You know, average to poor to guarded prognosis um, with that. Well, we've ended on a bit of a, a downer there, Mark, um, about um, about rabbits that may not survive, but some of them do. And um, do you final comment? Um, do you um, tend to see it in waves, so to speak? So it tends to happen at different times of the year. Definitely, that's the case, and um, particularly up here, we'll notice that um, you know through the spring and. Um, and uh, um, not so much in the heat of summer, um, but again in autumn there's a little bit of wet weather um, and the temperatures are warm. That favours the activity of those insects and makes it, you know, and similarly um, increases the likelihood that um, uh, with a bit of lush green stuff the, the rabbits in question will are more likely to soil themselves. So we definitely see um, a seasonal nature to it. And I like your comment before as well. I think um, uh, that there is a cohort of um, rabbit owners, new new rabbit owners, who are, um, are yet to learn the subtleties of these things. But a lot of our um, more experienced rabbit owners are aware that um, conditions like sludgy urine or spinal arthritis or those digestive upset rabbits, they're going to be at risk of this and, and they do seem to be onto it at an earlier stage. So I think getting the word out there amongst the rabbit-owning public um, definitely makes a difference. Yep. I've got nothing more to say, Mark. I think we're going to get out of here. And we'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. Thanks.